Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Sean Moriarty released a new library built on top of NX called Axon. This is a deep learning library for Elixir. You can check out a tweet for a little more information. What do you guys think about this? So Jose kind of gave some context to this, and he said, this is a big deal for Elixir. And it's designed as a bunch of small and composable functions, meaning you can tweak each step along the way. And it runs on NX. So that means that there is a JIT compilation for CPU or GPU targets, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, I don't have any personal experience with doing like deep learning networks. I, I don't know anything about it, really. I just think it's, it's always sounded fascinating and really cool. I'm just really happy to see that that's something else that's coming as part of this whole NX project. I imagine that this is uh, that we're starting to see the building blocks come together, right? NX is like the base layer of things, and we're going to start seeing more and more of these libraries to help really build out this, you know, this this ecosystem to make things easier for everyone uh, with machine learning. If you're interested in getting started with NX, we'll drop a link to a Dockyard blog that was released about getting up and running with NX. Next up, Elixir LS 0.7.0 was released. The largest change is a server-generated folding range support, and it now supports fuzzy matching for completion. And I thought that was the most interesting for me personally. You could type something like V-A-L-P, like VALP, and that will complete to validate password. So it's like, you know, fuzzy matching, like just different parts of the string. That looks really fun. Also notice that it adds support for Elixir 1.12. So looking forward to that. That's great. We have a link in the show notes where you can check out the full change log and announcement. That sounds like a good release. Uh, Speaking of language servers, uh, Erlang also got a language server update. 0.14 was released. Uh, Some of the features in this is auto-completion for include pass. Uh, We can show macro definitions on hover. Uh, Some of the basics are in there now, like renaming variables and functions. So good release. Uh, Check out uh, your editor tools. Make sure that you get your language servers updated and take advantage of these new things. And Sasha Yurik concluded his maintainable Elixir blog series. And so the final one is focused on testing. So Sasha talked with us back in episode 38 about this series and his thoughts on the subject of building maintainable Elixir projects. And we had a great discussion about that. So you can check out the blog post or the previous podcast if you want to hear more discussion about it. Here's an update on the Lumen project. Uh, in case you haven't heard of Lumen before, though, uh, it's an alternative beam implementation. It's designed for WebAssembly. Uh, so that's what Lumen is. So here's the update on Lumen is that the Lumen team is seeking some help uh, to implement ETS support uh, and requested some folks to contribute. It'd be good to get the team uh, of contributors a little bit bigger. Uh, just a reminder, this is implemented in Rust. So if you have any experience in Rust, Lumen team wants you. There's a link to the GitHub issue in the show notes, so you can check out the status there. Generally, I mean, it's it's nice to hear about Lumen, right? I, I feel like they've dropped out a little bit from the news cycle. I haven't seen a whole lot um, from uh, happen with, with Lumen. So it's nice to see that it's still on the radar. Love to see progress on it. Uh, very excited about the possibilities that Lumen can bring us. Yeah, me too. It sounds really exciting. Next up, thanks to a contribution from Kane Watson, HexPM diffs now allow you to click specific lines to get links. So a fun little update for hex diffs if you use those. Bamboo version 2.1 was released. Bamboo is an email library um, that helps you compose and send emails. The big deal here that I saw is the introduction of interceptors. 
and interceptors. These are great for intercepting emails and modifying them before they get sent out. So for example, I was excited about this because like these examples are exactly what I do in every email uh, and, and, and every application that sends email. So here's an example. Say for example, you have a staging environment and a production environment. An interceptor could intercept on staging and prefix your subjects with staging. You know, that's that's one example. Another example is, let's say that you have to email a list of 10 folks, uh, but two of them have bounced emails that you've seen. So you start creating a list and, and put those two emails on this on this bounced email list. An interceptor could go check for those bounced emails and take them out of the email before they're sent, right? So that way you don't continue to, to send these new these new emails to those bounced emails that are going to uh, just, just fail. So those are two examples of how to use interceptors, but generally love the feature. I think it's really helpful uh, and congrats uh, to the Bamboo team for getting that uh, release out. That looks really exciting. And I see uh, Herman Velasco was kind of making good on his previous commitment to having more frequent Bamboo releases. So congrats to him and the team. And last up, Jose Valim made a request to developers from all programming languages asking for contributions to a problem he posted as a GitHub project. So PRs were the way to kind of provide language-specific solutions. So the goal of this project was to share solutions to a common problem of traversing and annotating data structures across a variety of programming languages. So there's a link in the show notes to the GitHub repo. Specifically, it's a problem that languages that don't have immutable data can do a lot easier. And that's where they can just kind of mutate a deeply nested structure. And Jose was primarily interested in seeing how other FP languages would approach this, just thinking about how can we more efficiently modify deeply nested structures like that. So by the time this gets to you, it might have already been finished. I was like just checking it out. And there are a, a ton of really cool different languages showing how they would solve this. And so I know a number of listeners out there do not work with Elixir full-time. So you can check this out and see if there's something you can contribute. And if nothing else, it's just kind of really interesting to see all these different, in some cases, obscure languages and how they would actually solve this. So something fun to look for. We thought we were done with the news. And then there was some late breaking news that we just had to bring you. So Jose Valim announced Livebook, a web app for writing collaborative and interactive code notebooks in Elixir written in LiveView. And there's a new blog post on the Dashbit blog that has a YouTube video and kind of introducing it and a lot of information about it. So that's something very exciting to check out. Just looking through the YouTube video on it, it's really well done. Like it's it's lovely designed. Uh, you have code blocks in there that you can evaluate and you can, you know, edit the code and reevaluate it. So it's kind of like a little IEX terminal in your in your book, I guess, right? And you get to save all that stuff. Anyway, well done, folks, on on getting that uh, designed and, and released. It looks beautiful. I'm very happy to have that tool in our toolbox. I guess it's time to jump into machine learning. And that's it for the news. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Sasha Fonseca. Sasha, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. Today, I'm really excited to talk about this because this is a little bit more of a technical topic, but it's about the way Elixir and some of the Beam data types are actually structured and managed in memory. Where this becomes relevant to us is when we're trying to solve problems and we're using these data types. And it's most relevant when we misuse a data type, because maybe we have the wrong mental model about how this actually works. What I like is, you know, I've tried to cover some of these topic myself, but you went even deeper on this. And I love that. And I want to be able to make sure people were aware of this as a resource for learning and kind of getting their feet wet in this area. 
but also just kind of hear you about your journey and just how you came to dig into this and kind of the things you discovered along the way. Before we do that, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? My name is Sasha Fonseca, and I live in Lisbon, in Portugal, which is a small little country in Europe next to Spain. And I work as a senior software engineer and technical lead for a startup called TalkDesk, which is, in essence, a call center software as a service startup where any other company may build their own call center directly on cloud premises uh, using our software. And Elixir is one of the stacks that we use. And especially in my case, I've been developing with Elixir for our agent presence system, which is the system which keeps track of agents' presence across the call centers. So as they change from their status, from available to busy, taking maybe a call or performing calls uh, to the outbound section, or if they are uh, away, maybe in a toilet break or having lunch, all those status are published and delivered to the subscribers in real time. And we leverage uh, Elixir and Erlang for that. And this is a system which was quite a good fit for Elixir since TalkDesk has quite high uptime SLAs. We also wanted to ensure that we had high throughput with low latency in the delivery of these state changes across our clients. Besides that, uh, Elixir has also been a good fit when it comes to high availability uh, working with Kubernetes and even just any other uh, ways of deploying. Uh, before Kubernetes, we were using Heroku, and Elixir was a really a great fit for the high availability that we required. Besides this present system, I've also employed uh, Elixir at TalkDesk for your general uh, run-of-the-mill web APIs, like uh, any kind of crude functionality, or whenever we need to ensure that we've got good enough performance for our uh, web APIs. Phoenix has been great for that, very developer-friendly and very easy to customize using the plug systems to have custom plugs for authentication or for any other need that may arise. Leaksir and Phoenix have been a great couple of technologies for that. I think that's cool just because, you know, the Beam system, the Erlang heritage was telecom. What you're doing is call center within an organization telecom. So I think that's really great. And presence is an awesome tool to be able to pull in there. So that's really nice. So I would love to jump into this topic now. One, I just kind of want to understand, like when you're talking about Elixir's data types, people are coming from other languages. You know, there's a lot that come from Ruby, from Java, from other areas. And understanding the data types is really important. Because for one, I think it's interesting and just remarkable how few data types there are in Elixir. There's not a whole bunch of complicated data types, right? There's, there's a small set of them. But I'm curious, like, what prompted you to say, I want to dig deeper on this. I want to document this and, and pull together all this. What was your motivation? This journey started way back a couple of years ago. When I was working on a library, uh, not in Elixir, actually in Elm, you may know it's a functional programming language targeting the browser. It compiles down to JavaScript. 
It's also a language which I've been exploring, mainly for whenever I need to do some kind of front-end work on my personal projects. And at the time, I was working on this library uh, called EETF, which is just a bunch of encoders and decoders for Erlang external term format, which for those who don't know, the Erlang external term format is the protocol and the way in which the Beam converts and formats Erlang terms back into binary. So when you're using maybe Amnesia and you're storing any data to disk, or if you're using distributed Erlang with a cluster of nodes, when they communicate between them, they're using this external term format to serialize the Erlang terms and to communicate between one another. And this library I was working on, it was just an experiment to see if I could, from Elm, communicate with my Elixir server using this particular format uh, via either HTTP or WebSockets. This was just an experiment, uh, and I got good results from it. I ran some benchmarks, and I saw that, for example, for the same payloads, uh, when decoding on the Elixir server, decoding the external term format was about 45% faster than any JSON library like Jiffy. It was so, so much faster. It's also possible to reduce the payload size by about 20% when you encode and transfer. I found it to be quite a good way to reduce the load on the server, to relieve your memory footprint, and to also free some network bandwidth. So after that, I actually presented this library at Codebeam Lite in Berlin, 2019, right before COVID. After that conference, I continued to work a bit on this library, but it prompted me to look in not only how this communication happens between the Erlang nodes, but also how these data types are actually structured in memory. I believe what prompted me was just the knowledge to actually understand how all of this was happening under the hood. Since Elixir is my main programming language, I strive to have a top-to-bottom understanding of what's going on. Unfortunately, in Erlang, sometimes that's a bit difficult because the documentation can be quite scattered. And actually writing this, this article about the memory layout and the data types was kind of hard since I had to look in many different resources. And it isn't easy to actually make sense of all of it. Well, I appreciate you gathering all this information and putting it in one good place. That is really valuable. I wonder if there is an opportunity here to like contribute a page back to even Elixir Lang's, you know, xdocs, um, just, you know, a summary of how memory management works with, with Elixir, especially when it comes to data structures. Your focus on data structures here, I think is really, is really neat. It's important. I think I, I've heard a lot of folks say during interviews, like to, to be hired somewhere that one of the things that they actually look for in candidates is not so much that they can accomplish the problem, right? They're, if they're presented a problem, you know, how would you solve it? Tell me how you solve it. They're not actually looking for how you solve it. They're actually looking for the kind of data structures you, you use to solve it because those choices uh, actually exhibit more understanding of the language and your, you know, your technical expertise uh, of the language, uh, maybe more than you know, how you actually solve the problem. And it's for exactly these issues that you're talking about, memory management, that this becomes, you know, more uh, more important. 
anybody can just construct this huge thing in memory and accomplish the task and then throw it all away. But it takes a, it takes a, I don't know, a better programmer, I guess, to know that like, okay, we have gigabytes worth of information here or potentially gigabytes worth of information here to process. We can't put all of that into memory. So we have to be able to get it out you know, in chunks or in a streaming way or in this sort of data structure that's better suited for that. And we can't use tuples, you know, for this in this example because of this this issue. We have to use something like linked lists or, you know, something something else. Uh and linked lists would even be a good example here for lots of stuff. But anyway, yeah, I I find that really, really interesting that like the knowledge of data structures in some folks' uh opinions are are actually more important than how you solve problems necessarily it's what tools that you're using and the data structures are your tools in this case what tools are you using to to solve those problems with so yeah i i think this would be a good resource to contribute back to elixir lang so i wonder where a good place would be and if it would be accepted but having a good synopsis of how elixir and erlang you know like yeah manage memory and what which data structures are better for what situations you know i think that would be really beneficial so yeah appreciate you putting this together Thank you. Uh, it was a bit of an effort. And yeah, like you said, I'm not sure what's the correct place where it would go. I mean, this isn't just particular to Elixir. It also pertains to Erlang. Mm-hmm. And Erlang documentation has some stuff about this. But for example, there are other good resources uh, on the web, like the Beambook, which is a GitHub repository called the Beambook, which is in development. And I got some information from there and then i also got uh, more information from this website called beam wisdoms it's hard to know uh, how this stuff could be all put together i believe it should and since now that we've got the newly founded erlang foundation i think it's a step in the right direction to get these kind of resources available for for everyone but unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, it's really hard because i don't think the erlang developers are super explicit about it. Even if you search for any kind of presentations, uh, for example, there are about two or three different uh, presentations by someone called Dmitry Levchenko, if I'm not, uh, Dmitry Dimitri Levchenko. And it's this uh, presentation called Data Efficiency on the Beam. And it's probably the most direct resource about this kind of topic on the Beam. A virtual machine. But yeah, I believe there's totally the need for this information to be centralized someplace, uh, hopefully someplace which is kind of official, either by the Erlang developers or the Erlang Foundation, so that everyone can find it. Because if you look at other languages, uh, for example, Java, they've got the Java specification and it's available. And it's a very formal specification of how the language is meant to be implemented and what kind of properties it has. And unfortunately, uh, we don't really have this for Erlang or Elixir. Mm-hmm. Now, furthermore, if you look at those projects that have been been surfacing, like people implementing the Erlang virtual machine in Rust or in WebAssembly, I don't even know where are they getting this kind of information because <laughs> I find it really, really hard to find much about this topic. Yeah, that's a good point. So if you, dear listener, know of a good place or a good contact where this information could find a home, we'd love to hear from that or just directly contact Sasha. Yeah. And in the meantime, 
Sasha's, uh, you know, the, the blog post here on Honey Badger that Sasha contributed, this is a good place in the, in the meantime. So, of course, we'll have a link in, uh, in the show notes. So, obviously, for you to have collected this information came out of some motivation because you in- encountered some problems, right? <laughs> so, so tell, tell me what kind of problems uh, occurred that you, you saw when, you know, perhaps choosing the wrong data structures or memory management became more important. Tell, tell me about a problem that you encountered and, and how knowing about this solved it for you. When it comes to problems, I think the most common one is the binary leak. And for those who don't know, the binary leak comes from the problem where uh, binaries in the Erlang virtual machine are reference counted and they are shared between processes when they are over 64 bytes. So any binary over 64 bytes, instead of being uh, stored in the process heap, will be stored in a shared heap. And instead of storing those binaries, the process will have a reference to that binary residing on that shared heap. However, uh, this has a small problem, a counterpart, which is if for some reason uh, a process keeps hold of this reference for some uh, any particular operation and it never gets garbage collected, if there's at most one single reference to this binary, uh, then that binary in particular won't be garbage collected from the shared heap. And if this happens to several binaries, you start accumulating binaries who which never get garbage collected since they are being kept by at least one single reference. And this leads to an enlarged memory footprint, which can in turn lead to maybe running out of memory errors uh, in your system, or at least you're using more memory than you really should be, which isn't also ideal to any system. And so what, what was the solution there? So, so if I'm understanding correctly, you have just a string, a blob, you know, of, of binary uh, that's more than 64 kilobytes. It, it's going to go into some shared heap. And if there's anything that ever references it, it's just going to stay out there forever and things are going to build up. I know that Phoenix uses IO lists to help avoid this kind of, this kind of issue. So it, it uses the linked list data structure to keep those binaries you know, your whole page, for example, all of your HTML is not one big string blob, right? It's, it's actually a, a list of lots of small little strings. What did you do? What's a tip for avoiding this kind of issue? My main recommendation for that is, like you said, to use IO lists. And uh, for any listeners who aren't aware of what an IO list is, uh, an IO list is a particular data structure which holds either a binary or it holds another IO list. So it's a recursive type. And what these IO lists are, they are lists of references to binaries. So instead of having a list with several binaries in them, they are just pointing to the actual binaries on this shared heap of the virtual machine. That way you can reuse these binaries without ever needing to copy them. And you just keep the references around and your operations will be much more efficient and like in Phoenix, it allows for that kind of uh, large HTML templates to be held in memory and all of the HTML tags and whatever they have contained inside them will be reused whenever needed. And when they are cleansed from the process heap, those references will be cleansed as well. And that greatly reduces to keep the shared binaries around and prevent this binary leak issue. 
another way to solve this, and this is better documented and explained in the Erlang in Anger book, is to use either the recon library or to just check which processes are keeping the highest amount of memory and just forcefully run the garbage collection on them. I love that there's something called Erlang in Anger. I hadn't even heard of that before. It's a book uh, by uh, Fred Hebert, the big uh, Erlang guru who worked at Heroku. And he wrote this. It's an ebook. It's free. And it's got lots of great uh, details and tips on how to avoid this kind of problems in Erlang. Yeah, Erlang and Anger is an awesome resource to help people who are troubleshooting production kind of runtime issues. Like, what's happening here? How do I figure out why there's CPU being spent here? A lot of little uh, scripts and, and things that you can use as part of the recon library to kind of figure out where is, the, where is my CPU being spent? Like, what are the top five memory consumers like that for my processes? And it's really cool stuff like that. So glad you mentioned that as a resource. So this is fascinating stuff because I don't come from a CS background. So forgive me if I ask silly questions, but it sounded like you were saying if a binary gets over a certain size, it's put into the shared heap. But are you saying that IO list is different? It just always puts its binary blobs into the shared heap, regardless of how big or small they are? As far as I'm aware, yes. I don't know if there's any particular implementation in which it differs. But yes, I believe it usually will just use the reference. It's not meant to keep the binary itself. But I, I may be wrong in this. So that's cool. So David, you were saying that, or I guess you both were suggesting that Phoenix uses these. And I've heard that as well. I don't know if I've ever like inspected them and looked at what these lists look like when they're being built up when you're doing your templating. So you guys were saying that it almost like shares some of the common binary. So like if there's like an H1 tag, do they make like a blob of just H1 so that like H1 tags, like opening H1 tags and closing H1 tags are like shared. So there's only ever like one blob of an H1 tag for your whole template. I don't think it works quite like that, uh, at least not yet. I don't believe that Phoenix proper is actually parsing HTML you know, and splitting up tags in that way. I, I suspect it's more about, I don't know this. So if somebody actually knows, like they should, they should, uh, you know, hit us up on Twitter and explain it a little bit more to us. But I suspect it's actually by line in, in your, your EEX template. And so that each line in there is just a, uh, it's just a, a value in the linked list. And then the next line is the next value in the linked list, right? And all of it going down that way total guess, but I'm, I'm assuming that's how that works. And then if you use the functions to create a tag, that, that's going to be a little bit different. But like, if you're using an EEX template and you just have your string in there, like your HTML's in there, like I suspect it's line by line, but you know, there's the functions to, to create a tag and, and that's going to be a little bit different. I don't know how, like maybe Sasha, maybe you know this, but if there does happen to be the same exact string, if it's smaller than 64 kilobytes, then it sounds like it's just going to be that string and there will be, an, if you have a, another web request coming in and there's, there's a separate process over there and it's doing the same template, those will be two copies of the same string, one copy in each in each process. And once that process is done, if you know if it's under 64 kilobytes, that process will close and the process will get garbage collected. It's not both processes looking at a single memory location with the same string in there. I think they're just two copies at that point. And it's not until 
it's over 64 kilobytes that there's any opportunity for it to be shared. Am I getting that right? Sasha, does that sound right to you? Yeah, uh, I believe that's exactly it. The, yeah. the goal there is to share those larger binaries between processes. So they'll, instead of holding the binary itself, they are just pointing to it and then they can retrieve the actual value when needed. But those uh, smaller than 64 byte binaries will be kept in the local process instead of just a pointer. But right. maybe that's the way IOLists are also implemented. They either point to a shared binary or point to a local binary. Maybe that's the, the gist of it. One thing I do want to mention, you know, we're talking about IOLists, and that is a very efficient way that Phoenix can render out pages where it's not having to have copies, right? And you're able to, that a segment of a IO list might be calling a function that executes and says, I'm going to return the customer name. So it's a way of building up on demand the text that's going to be streamed out over the HTTP request connection. The, the main thing I want to make sure people are aware of is if you're just say, hey, I just want to make a Phoenix app and uh, solve my problem. You don't have to care about this at this level. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to say, oh, oh, no, I need to like, you know, make sure I'm creating this in an IO list format. It's like, no, don't worry about that. I think where this becomes relevant is when you are dealing with really large text in the back end of a system, not necessarily that I'm rendering it through a Phoenix page, but I'm just dealing with large text, you know, like a, an issue tracking system like Zendesk or something like that, where I have large blocks of text, then maybe it becomes more relevant if I'm having a lot of those that live for a, some longer period of time in memory. That's where that becomes a bigger concern. How do you feel about that, Sasha? Yeah, uh, I feel like you, you nailed it. I mean, uh, when you're working with this kind of systems which are delivering HTML, this uh, text content to clients, uh, lots of it is reused. We can imagine like if you've got a web page and it's got like this footer with some notice and copyright stuff and uh, warnings, maybe that's just a blob of text that will be uh, reused to every single page. Maybe every client uh, navigating to a new page will see that content. So if you can have that content living in a place and be shared, maybe that's a great way to reduce your memory footprint and just have faster requests in general, have uh, lower latency. And I believe this is probably uh, one of the goals of IOLists, is to reuse text, mainly text, I believe, that will be served to lots of clients. Now, there are other situations where it does matter for a regular just writing Elixir code. And one of those that I've seen frequently when people are coming new to Elixir is they want to treat a list like they would an array in other languages like in Python or JavaScript or something like that. And a very common way that someone would treat an array is that they would, you know, building up a list of things and they would be appending, sticking new items onto the end of that list. And that's where, you know, this is a day-to-day -day thing that understanding the Elixir data structure really does matter. So Sasha, I loved how you kind of had some nice little graphics kind of explaining how a list works and why it has some of these behavior characteristics that we see in Elixir. So maybe you could kind of tell us about some of that. Regarding the lists, I won't say a misunderstanding, more like a lack of knowledge of what's going on. And appending lists, like you said, uh, it's 
quite an expensive operation because you are copying the list and then you have to join them back and create yet another list. And for example, when you want to just append a single element to a list, it's much faster and efficient to just put it at the head, you know, your usual square brackets, insert the head into the list that will be quite much more performant. However, when you're dealing with other data types, mainly tuples and maps, these changes, and that's very dependent on their implementation. For example, uh, I believe tuples are implemented underneath as an array, and therefore, if you want to access directly an element by its index, it has performance as using an array, let's say, in Java or C. But for a list, this isn't the case. In a list, you'll have to traverse the list until you find that particular index. I think it's safe to say this kind of issues won't affect your system overall performance too much if you don't have a significant load on it. But when you're dealing with mission-critical code, or if you are actually interested in squeezing the most performance from our systems, these kind of issues start becoming relevant. And there's no way to get around it but to actually acquire the knowledge to make these choices of whether you will be using a map or a tuple or a list. Uh, even binaries can be used to store uh, raw data if you find and design a proper format for your data. Like everything in engineering, it's a game of trade-offs, and you just have to think about how it fits your particular problem. So I want to repeat some of some of that just to just make sure that I'm understanding it. So there are several data structures that we just we just covered. We, we've been talking about lists, and I want to differentiate here. Single linked lists. These are the ones where the head and the tail. It's like basically everything is only ever two two elements. The head is the ele- is the thing that is being stored, and then the tail is the, a reference to the next list. So it's a recursively you know linked list in that way, and that's that's how that can be efficient. That's separate from an array. An array is a is stored in memory all at once. It's it's all together, right? And things that are stored like arrays in Erlang and Elixir are tuples. They're really fast to access because they're all stored all together, but slower to modify. Where does maps, right? So I, I know about li- linked lists in, in Elixir, and I know about tuples in Elixir, but maps are another, and, and we talked about strings and IO lists uh, as well. But where do, where do maps fit into this? Help, help me understand how maps are, fall into this. Maps, they kind of uh, fall in the middle of lists and tuples. Yet again, they are they are also dependent on the size of the map, like binaries are. Maps also depend on the size. I believe Erlang splits their implementation of maps at the 32 element size. Whenever a map has a size less than 32, it will just be a sorted keyword list. And it will have the performance that you expect from this kind of data structure of the keyword lists. So let's say if you are performing a lookup for a particular value, it will just perform a binary search and it will incur into the same penalties that a regular binary search in a list will will have. However, if you have a map with size larger than 32 elements, 
then it will uh, work as a, your regular hash table and lookups will be faster. However, I don't believe this kind of differences should be taken into account when you're designing your algorithm or your abstraction, let's say. It's best to first use what you feel is the best tool for your job and later, after you've designed it, after you know it's working, uh, get into the nitty-gritty details and start seeing how it can be better applied to squeeze the most performance. It's nice to understand these things. Sometimes I'm working in a list and like it doesn't matter what the order of the list is right now. So I just prepend to it just so that when the code does execute, like it's faster than if I were yeah. appending, right? Because yes. it doesn't matter. So why not? Exactly. When the order doesn't matter. Yes, that's perfect. And it's hard to remember these things. So we're going to throw a link uh, link down. Uh, there's a GitHub repository that kind of has these benchmarks all laid out too. So you know, you can implement it the way that you feel like it's the right way to first, and then maybe use some reference material. Like uh, Devin Estes has a, a GitHub repo called Fast-Elixir. Check that out. And it's got these benchmarks in there. There's especially a lot around the IO lists or not IO lists, lists in general. And so if order does matter, it might be more performant to prepend and then reverse the list. <laughs> you know, if you do need, you know, if you do need it in a certain order, uh, then it is to like uh, up upend to the list. Uh, so anyway, use that as a reference material. You don't have to keep all this stuff in your head all the time and just know where to, where to go. And maybe, maybe hopefully some of Sasha's material here can get, uh, can get contributed somewhere where there's a good reference material, you know, on core docs as well. Yeah, I guess the point that I was trying to make is just I don't want people who are coming new to Elixir to be overly concerned that, oh, no, I'm, if I don't understand all the depth of this, that I'm not doing it right. That's the main thing. I just want to make sure people don't get overwhelmed with thinking I have to know everything before I can do anything. Sasha, like you came new to Elixir. What, what did you come from before coming to Elixir? I came from Elixir from your uh, regular Java background. You know, when I got my degree in university, it's mostly Java programming with just a few sprinkles of functional programming for computer science courses. However, uh, when I actually jumped to Elixir, everything felt quite different, and especially when you've got these just pretty much three data structures to work with, you use lists, tuples, and maps. It's very different from what you learn in the Java world of having uh, several implementations of lists and several implementations of sets and maps and arrays and array lists and all kinds of combinations, which all have their own purposes. But in the Elixir and Erlang and overall Beam world, everything feels so much simpler. So you mentioned like maps, lists, and tuples, which really, you can do almost anything with them. Like lists of tuples can be keyword lists and lists of maps can be like database records. You know, you can express almost anything with these, but I'm just curious, have you worked with lower level languages like C where explicit memory management was required? Unfortunately, I can't really say I did. I've... I used it in the past when I was in university, especially because at a certain point I was quite interested in following game development. And so I had learned a little bit about Unreal Engine and that kind of game programming, which is mostly done in 
C or C++, but those were just really tiny projects, uh, personal projects, really. So I didn't really get that, let's say, battle-tested and hardened experience from using those non-managed languages in production. And that's also one of the reasons why I wanted to better understand how this is done in Elixir. Because one of the points of higher level languages is just to remove the burden of that memory management. But while you remove the burden, you don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. And that's not beneficial in some cases. It, again, it's a game of trade-offs. You make the language do that for yourself and you don't understand what's going on. And you must choose what of those sides you prefer. So one of the things I love about the Beam and everything is this idea of immutable data. And in your blog post, you talked about boxed values and how I think those are really relevant when we're talking about immutable data and why that's beneficial. So maybe you can share a little bit about like what is a boxed value for one and how does that help us in this area of immutable data? Erlang actually distinguishes between two different types of terms. So you've got immediate terms and box terms. The immediate terms are your literals, which don't require heap space because they fit into a single world of memory and the data type itself is contained in the structure. So in this case, when we talk about immediate terms, we're talking about small integers, pids, parts, and atoms, for example. However, if we look at other different data types like lists, lists, for example, have an arbitrary length. So they can't fit into a single world of memory and you don't even know how much memory you'll need for a particular list. They expand beyond the containing structure, if I may say so. So they do require heap space and they are usually a header and this header is followed by a an arity term, and this arity will indicate the size of, for example, the list or the tuple. So we've got a list of size uh, 5. We'll have this arity term with the value of 5. And from there on, the beam will know that it will need 5 further uh, words of memory to contain the 5 elements of the list. And if you look at other uh, data types. For example, you know that in Erlang, the integers can go up to infinity. And this isn't possible in your regular uh, small integers because they're fixed by the process architecture, either 32-bit or 64-bit architecture. And they'll only go up to how much that particular architecture allows. And uh, big numbers uh, in Erlang, in other programming languages, uh, big number arithmetic, it's a way of having integers larger than, than, than that boundary. It goes beyond that process architecture boundary, and it will uh, use this contiguous list of uh, integers in order to describe a larger integer in itself. Well, Sasha, we're coming up to our time, but I did want to make sure we, we could mention anything that you feel we've forgotten or haven't gotten to that you think is relevant and you want to make sure we touch on. I'd like to just leave uh, what I believe is a good recommendation, especially for people coming to Elixir, and that's to don't forget about structs. As you may know, structs are pretty much maps. You can say that they are built on top of maps, and they they really are. And uh, structs are a great way of 
organizing your data and also to represent and abstract your concepts. For example, if you look at plug, you know that plug has the construct, which is the way that plug represents the HTTP connection for that particular request. And that's built on a struct. And I believe that this is a great way of uh, employing abstractions because if you remember that uh, modules and functions are also data types and that they may be stored inside these functions. So structs are a great way to boost composition between your processes and you can really combine all of these data types together to bring out the best that you've got in the, the BIM world. I'm glad you mentioned structs. I meant to ask about them earlier and forgot, but structs are really great and Sometimes your IDE gives you help. Elixir also gives you compile time checks and helpful messages when you're doing things. When you're pattern matching for a struct, I know that there is some help to tell you like what fields are available in the struct. And so structs are, are really helpful. So I'm glad you brought those up. Yeah, structs, they're better understood at compile time, not only by the, the language itself, but by the programmer. You know, the fields are defined. You may have a type spec defining uh, what kind of values you expect. And that's really helpful when you're designing your systems and you are thinking about how everything fits in your mental model. Structs are, in my opinion, really the way to go in order to have good Elixir code that's maintainable and easy to understand. All of these data types that we spoke about, they're also important, but it's best to first have your system organized and with its correct boundaries between components and have everything working in an elegant way. Afterwards, it's okay to think about performance and efficiency. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate this resource you've put together and I encourage people to check it out so they can understand a little deeper on some of these data types and be able to jump out to some of these other resources that you found and kind of uh, able to help people access. So I'm curious... Sasha, is there something else that you're like curious about and you're about to dig into next? Anything you can share, like where your what your interest is going? Actually, yes, I've got a few ideas which came up after writing these resources about memory management. I've actually got mainly three ideas, and one I'm already working on, which is a similar article about garbage collection, because I've got. Mm an okay understanding of how garbage collection works in the BIM. But I also believe this concept of the BIM can also be maybe better described. I know this is better described in the Erlang documentation, unlike the memory management of the data types. But I still, uh, I'd like to at least write an article on it so I may understand it better myself. Afterwards, I've got the idea of explaining that Elm library I spoke about because I implemented the external term format to a serialized data between Erlang nodes. But I actually got this idea of implementing the distribution protocol, which is the way the nodes actually connect between themselves. And I've got this idea of doing this in Elm and have the browser act as an Erlang node to speak with an actual Beam node running maybe a backend server, let's say. And I'm not sure what are the advantages of doing this, of having a browser connected as an Erlang node. I 
testing this is proof experimental and just to check what will happen and what I can get out of it. Well, it sounds like an interesting experiment. Yes. Looking forward to hearing what happens with that. So I just did also want to share with people, uh, with uh, you, dear listener, if you're wanting to play with some of these data types and get some hands-on experience, I do have a course that is a free course. It's pattern matching. It covers all of these basic data types and gives you some practice exercises where you can play with destructuring and pattern matching on tuples, maps, lists, and using atoms and the basic data types. But also, you know, the idea of working with a list and prepending versus appending and, and what that happens. So you can get that hands-on feel for how that works. So I just encourage you to check that out if that's something you're interested in. But Sasha, if people are wanting to follow you or get in touch with you online, where is the best way for them to do that? I've got uh, a Twitter handle, which is uh, Sasha SFM. And on GitHub, my handle is uh, Sasha AFM. And I'll use mostly one of these two handles everywhere on the web. You can find me in the main Elixir Slack workspace or in the Erlang workspace or even in the Erlang Foundation workspace. You are free to hit me up uh, any way you like. Awesome. Well, we'll have links to all that in the show notes and also all the, many of these resources that Sasha was sharing with us. So a lot of those are in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.